Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace, the amazing grace that you give us. We thank you that your mercies are new every day. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we wake up to grace. Lord, that you give us sleep at night uh, as a means of grace. We thank you for the food on our tables, the friends that you give us for a good day's work. Lord, we thank you for even in the valleys of, uh, of shadows, of grief and losses. Lord, you are still good. And Lord, you are good to these young ones, these children. We pray that you will be with them as they go to Friends of Jesus. Speak words of truth and grace into their hearts and be with us as well for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before uh, we begin, I just want to thank you for uh, your prayers uh, for, for myself and our family. Uh, many of you uh, have been lifting us up in prayer. I had surgery a couple weeks ago. I had a, it was a groin hernia operation repair surgery, and uh, things are going very well. Uh, so thank you for that. But probably one of the deepest uh, longings or wounds in our family is the loss of my nephew, Evan, uh, who, uh, through an overdose, uh, took his life or lost his life uh, two months after his dad uh, died of uh, stage four lung cancer. So it's been a pretty grieving time uh, for our family, but I uh, have sensed, and Maria and I have sensed just the support and the care and the love of this body. Um, and this, you know, these kinds of tragic moments really are reminders that. Jesus is the only answer, uh, and that is a reminder of how desperately the gospel is needed, and, uh, and so thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, we've been working our way through the uh, Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, which is really, in essence, the disciples' prayer, a guide to followers of Christ and how to pray and the kinds of things that God delights to hear from his children. Uh, in this, Jesus is showing his disciples... Uh, how they can be people of prevailing and joy-filled prayer. And so Jesus is showing us that we can be a people of prevailing, joy-filled prayer when we know that God is a radically personal, a radically powerful, and radically and profoundly a loving Father, that he delights in the presence, he delights in the prayers, he delights in the adoration of his children. And that we... Uh, can be a people of radical or prevailing prayer as we know God is not only our loving Father, but is a king. He's a king that has a kingdom, and that he has invited us to be part of the advancement of his kingdom in this world. And that our radically loving Father wants and invites his children to pray for their daily sustenance, their daily bread, uh, that we weren't just spiritual beings, but we are... Uh, are not disembodied spirits. We are physical creatures. And your needs and the needs of the body and the needs of people throughout the world are important to Jesus and to the Father, and he wants us to pray for those. But today, Jesus calls us to prayers about forgiveness, of receiving and giving forgiveness. Uh, here in verse 12 and following, Jesus calls us to be a people 
who daily need the grace of forgiveness, but also to be a people who daily give the grace of forgiveness. So we're going to start, let's just start the larger context, starting with verse 9, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Forgiveness. The practice of giving and receiving true forgiveness, of wiping out an offense from memory to restore broken relationship, is a rare commodity in our world, but it is greatly needed. Uh, Chanel Gaskins knows this. In August of 2017, she got the phone call she never thought she'd receive. Her 13-year-old daughter had been shot and killed outside a 7-Eleven in Middle River, one not, mo- not one mile from her house in a neighborhood she had always considered safe. She said, I didn't ask any questions. I just got up and I ran. Gaskins joined at least 30 other mothers and grandmothers and children Saturday evening uh, back in that month for a peace and forgiveness walk in Northeast Baltimore's Bel Air Edison neighborhood. The walk was organized by mothers of murdered sons and daughters known as moms to raise awareness about the toll gun violence takes on our families and to send a message that enough is enough. They, she said, too many people think to solve the problem is to pick up a gun. Gaskin said, I'm willing to take a stand. And with more than 300 homicides in Baltimore over the last three years, this group's message is more important than ever. She said, Mom's founder, Daphne Austin, said, We're saying, as the moms who have lost our children, and most of us do not have solved cases, we are willing to forgive what you all have done, she said, if you all change your ways and stop this senseless violence. And Sun writer Jonathan Pitts uh, wrote an article some time ago, Give Forgiveness a Chance, uh, where he recounted the story of Veta Allen, who received news one day that her beloved son was gunned down in the streets. The sudden loss and overwhelming grief woke her up every morning as she cried out, Oh no, God, I'm still here. Her grief was so heavy it seemed to pin her to her bed, and when the darkness started enveloping her family, she said, I watched them ball up. She saw that the killer's crime was on the verge of claiming them all. What happened next, Alan doesn't wholly understand, but she began to pray for the man who killed her son. She said, Uh, She had no great love for the offender who never spent time in jail. She had to work day and night, or day and day, to sustain her attitude of goodwill. But her decision bore out what a growing number of behavioral scientists have been learning. Forgiveness heals. 
She said, if I hadn't started those prayers, I'd be homeless or in an, an insane asylum or maybe ready to commit murder myself. However, such determination to forgive is not the norm in our society or in our world. A lot of believers will probably resonate with the thought on this coffee mug that uh, my wife Maria humorously gave me, don't get mad, get imprecatory. Now, imprecatory, that is not a common word today. Imprecations uh, is the act of calling down a curse and judgment on someone who has done something evil against you. A passion and a plea for justice, expressing outrage over wickedness done and eagerness for God's judgment. In Psalm 58, uh, David speaks about unjust rulers who do violence, and he calls God to break the teeth of the, in their mouths. O God, tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them, them vanish like water that flows away. Or in Psalm 10.5, he says, Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness. God gives us these imprecatory psalms to affirm the pain that's in our hearts when, when we're wounded, to give us voice to our desire for justice. God affirms the cry of the victim. Such cries reveal to us that God feels about our woundedness. He hates wickedness and the violence and oppression and sin. However, as Jesus makes clear here, and as in the rest of the scriptures, while we cry out to God with our pain of our wounds and offenses, it is not our call or our role to take vengeance, to mete out what we perceive as bringing justice, or to nurse a grudge. The call of the believer, the follower of Christ, is to do good to those who hurt us, to bless those who persecute us, to love our enemies. Ours is not a day of cursing and judgment. Ours is a day of blessing, a day of forgiveness and reconciliation that people might see and know Jesus in us. And so Jesus teaches us in this prayer that our response to the offenses that occur every day against us and by us, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, forgive us our transgressions and offenses as we forgive the debts, the sins, and the transgressions and offenses of others. And so here Jesus is calling his disciples, and, and Jesus is calling each one of us here to a life of forgiveness, an everyday perpetual constant practice of forgiveness. Christians are to be known as forgiving people. And here Jesus shows us the pervasiveness of forgiveness needed, the priority of forgiveness ordered, and the power of forgiveness required. So he addresses the pervasiveness of forgiveness and how much it's needed. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Receiving and giving forgiveness is something that we need to be doing every day. And so Jesus places it right after the prayer asking for daily bread. Jesus expect, expects that such praying is a daily need. We need daily bread, and we need to daily forgive. We need to live a lifestyle of repentance. A brief review of the Sermon on the Mount, which is where this prayer is located, 
emphasizes the calling of forgiving and giving grace. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about this, about how people face offenses. We are to count ourselves blessed. In verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, uh, humble, who don't respond in kind to offenses, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are you who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And Jesus says we are called, called to love our enemies. In verse 43 in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your enemies and hate your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus says that it is imperative for his followers not to nurse a grudge or to tear down a person who has hurt us, but to aggressively pursue reconciliation. In Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly. And this raises the question for us, you know, do we, do you and I, have someone in our life that we feel has offended us? Or do we know of someone that we believe we have offended. Jesus does not allow followers to think that they can be passive or complacent about this and to think that it's okay to keep a grudge or to break fellowship. Jesus said this is a matter of Christian urgency. Jesus says you can't think that you can attend worship you can't think that you can get your praise on and have these broken relationships hanging out there. Jesus says his followers are those who will follow through, who engage their brother or sisters and they seek reconciliation to address the offenses. Paul tells us that we, we can't control what others and how others respond, but we can take responsibility for our part in the pursuit of reconciliation. So Romans 12, he says... Not repay evil, anyone evil for evil, but be careful that you do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, leave, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends, it is your responsibility to do your part as far as it depends on you. There is no single matter, no other issue that takes up more teaching space in the sermon on the mount than Christ's followers' response to offenses. It is, I believe, the hardest thing for believers, and yet I believe it is one of the most counter-cultural behaviors that shock people to see the amazing grace of God. The matter of forgiveness is the main challenge raised in the Lord's Prayer. It is the only prayer area that is further elaborated on by Jesus to emphasize its weight. In verse 14, he follows up, 
For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. And so we might pause here and ask, what does Jesus mean? It seems like he's saying there's conditions on receiving forgiveness from God. That we are forgiven only when and if we forgive others. This sounds like the law. That God will only forgive me to the measure I forgive others. This is clearly seems what Jesus plainly is saying. So what is this about? Well, this is not about conditional salvation. This is a statement of the character of salvation. Jesus is not speaking a prescription rule for salvation, but he is describing a person who is saved. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in this prayer is describing the character of his followers. He's not talking about perfect following, but a pursuit of following Jesus. What a lifestyle of repentance and faith looks like. A person who has received grace is a person who will give grace. A disciple is one who forgives. A disciple is one who deals with their own sin and their brokenness and who will not allow offenses to become a root of bitterness. If I don't apply my faith, if I don't accept his grace, if I am totally consumed with what others have done to me and I have no room for what God has done for me, then it should raise the question in my heart of whether I am a follower of Christ. This does not mean that believers do not struggle with forgiveness or giving forgiveness. To struggle with forgiveness is an expression of faith. You have determined as a struggler to enter into the battleground of the gospel. It is the denial, it's the refusal to engage in the pursuit and the struggle to claim the grace to address your own sin and to give grace to another. So the posture of the disciple, according to Christ, is one of forgiveness and of giving grace. It is something that you and I have to face every day, whether in major offenses or in a thousand smaller ones. Uh, this past week, I had uh, breakfast with uh, an older brother, and, and he was mentioning to me about a neighbor of his who had been encroaching on his property. I mean, literally yards of his property that he had taken over. And this had been, I had remembered, just a, a, a dispute that he had with this neighbor that really had kind of broken a relationship. And there was a question of whether he should go. He actually had a survey made, and he had a line cut that was precisely uh, showing the, 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 bear, the boundaries of the property, but his neighbor didn't care. His neighbor just kept using the property. And, uh, and so my friend basically said, he sensed that God was telling him, just let it go. It's not worth it. Just give it to him. He says, I've blessed you. I've given you. And that's what he did. That was a pretty amazing thing. I mean, the idea that he's not going to fight for what actually belongs to him. You know, I think about the, uh, I think that doesn't mean that you don't, you don't fight necessarily or claim rights but you need to know when to hold up, <laughs> when to fold up, when to walk away. You gotta, I think that's a Kenny Rogers song. <laughs> but the point, the point is that, that a gospel person is a person who will be a person who gives grace, who forgives offenses. 
And uh, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to the, his glory to overlook an offense. The great temptation, however, is to hold the debt, to not forgive, to maintain the broken relationship, and not to love our enemies, but to hate them. But the key calling, the key mark of Jesus' disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and for his followers is that we are to be a people of grace in a harsh world. Dr. Martin Luther King, in a sermon uh, from Matthew 5 on loving your enemies, he comments on this mark, this pervasive calling and prayer need of forgiveness. He says, there will be no permanent solution to the race problem until oppressed men develop the capacity to love their enemies. The darkness of racial injustice will be dispelled only by the light of forgiving love. Of course, this is not practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog eat dog. Am I saying that Jesus commands us to love those who hurt and oppress us? Do I sound like most preachers, idealistic and impractical? Maybe some distant utopia, you say, that idea will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, he says, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with wreckage of communities which surrender to hatred and violence. Love is the only way to create the beloved community. And he says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We shall win freedom, but not for ourselves. We shall appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. He talks about how he will wear down his enemies with the capacity to love. But however, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer shows us the priority of forgiveness ordered. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus wants us to consider our debts and our sins first before we start talking about other people's offenses. And so... The tendency is that our first orientation is to focus on the debts and the transgressions of others to us, what others have done against us, how bad others have been to us. We make this the first order of business in our hearts. The secondary, we may uh, consider that we've done some things to contribute to this broken relationship. Yet we assume that the other person has done much more and has, much, has done more uh, horrible things against us. In the next chapter, Jesus raises our distorted order uh, when he addresses the matter of judging. In chapter 7, verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? <laughs> so Jesus is saying uh, that we get so obsessed with the molehills of other offenses that we neglect the mountain of sin in our own life. And so Jesus orders this prayer that we need to recognize the priority of forgiveness, that we must look at our need for forgiveness for ourselves. 
You know, this is uh, the idea of, of uh, dealing with offenses quickly, of addressing your own part in the sin of uh, the broken relationship is so important. Uh, one of the things that probably has saved uh, Marie and our marriage is that early on when we were engaged, we had made a covenant to one another. Uh, and the covenant was around this passage from Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, which says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. And we basically said, we will not go to bed. We will not go to sleep at night if we have an unresolved conflict in our lives, in our relationship. We'll work at that. I can only remember two really horrible nights where we didn't practice that, and they were terrible. It is so important to deal quickly with offenses and where your wounds are and to make sure that you're not allowing bitterness to take root. And so Jesus shows us the pervasiveness of forgiveness needed, the priority of forgiveness ordered, and finally he shows us the power of forgiveness required. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's important to note, in the order of the Lord's Prayer, that the matter of asking and giving forgiveness is placed where it is. It is not at the head or the top of the prayer list. This does not mean that it is not important, but it is not the main thing for God. It is not the defining thing in our relationship with God. The main thing, the defining thing in our relationship is that Christ, through Christ, we have been adopted into his family and that we have intimate access by his grace. The main thing is that God is our loving and strong father and awesome father who delights in the adoration of his children. This is the entry to our prayer to God, celebrating who he is and our relationship with him. Now, earlier in the life of the church, when we were worshiping and, and we, we would, and it's even before we were in this facility, by the way. Uh, but, and I was designed, I was this, you know, young seminarian coming out trying to figure out how to do church and uh, do worship. And, and I said, well, you know, we have to like deal with our sins right off the bat. And so at the top, I mean, very top of every worship service, we would start off with a confession of sin. And I said, we just need to deal with our sins, get them out of the way, and, and then just move into worship. And then a really wise sister in this body, a uh, sister that uh, has been a friend and encourager and speaks the truth in love, and she is still here, Vernette Abrahams, I want to say, came up to me and she says, you know, Every time we worship and you start off with confession, I just feel like I'm just walking into like a really downer type experience. You know, just like this immediate focus on my sin. It just doesn't, something's not right with that. And by the way, we can be corrected here. Leaders can be corrected. It is okay. We, we accept correction. And so I, I sat on that for a while and I started thinking about the scriptures. And, and you know what? She was absolutely right. Theologically, we don't come to God immediately with a focus on our sins, not as people of faith. 
We come with the focus on the greatness of our Father who loves us. And so like in Psalm 100, he talks about enter his courts with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. That the first thing that we should be as a God's people is praising and adoring him and worshiping him. Yes, there is a place for a confession, but we first come in with our praise. We come in with thanksgiving. We come as children who have been received into the arms of God through the blood of Jesus. You know, Psalm 103 that we had heard uh, already, uh, that uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord, all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our sins and uh, heals all our diseases. And so we come with blessing, we come with thanksgiving. The overarching and the overwhelming reality is that God wants us to feel through Jesus that we have God as our Father, we have Jesus as our Savior, and that we have the forgiveness of sins. We have the, in Ephesians 1, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. And so uh, this slide that shows the, these emphasis that as far as the east is from the west, and you think about the east from the west, what happens, how far is the east from the west? Well, Anybody that has a sense of geography or mathematics or whatever, you realize it's infinite. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from him. He has, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. This is what, how God views forgiven people, his forgiven daughters and sons. He doesn't remember. He doesn't recall. That doesn't mean that he doesn't know that they existed. Uh, Some people say, I will forgive, but I'll never forget. (laughs) But God actually forgets. He doesn't remember. He doesn't hold any of that. When we come into his presence, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. And we saw Micah 7, 18, the God who pardons sin. He does not retain his anger. God is not angry with you as his child. He delights in you. And the why he delights in you? Because he delights in his son, whom you have trusted to save you from your sins. So when we focus on our wounds from others and the chronic offenses that come our way every day, we will not have the power to give forgiveness. We will be like Peter who said, well, Lord, you know, how often should I forgive my brothers who uh, offends or sins against me? Seven times and actually Peter thought he was being really generous. He thought that he was being magnanimously generous in his forgiveness to others. And then Jesus kind of pulls the rug out from under him. And I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, or 490, or basically an infinite number of times. How do you do this, Lord? I mean, how do you keep forgiving somebody that keeps offending you over and over and over again? And so Jesus tells them, well, this is how you've done it. You have to live in the amazing grace of God. And he gives this, this parable of this master who had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. And he was requiring him to pay up his debt. And 10,000 talents was millions, millions of dollars. The master threatened to take the man to, to, to jail and to have his 
his children and his wife in servitude to pay until the debt's repaid. And so the, this debtor man falls on his face before this master and pleads uh, for pity and mercy. And the master had pity and he had mercy on this man and forgave his debts. But that same servant went out to a guy that just owed him a few shillings, a penance, a, just a few dollars. And, and he started to choke him and he said, pay what you owe. And the servant fell and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and he put him in prison until the debt was paid. The other servant saw this and said, this is ridiculous. After everything that the master has done for you, they tell the master and of course the master goes and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should... You not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do, every, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And Jesus is basically saying a believer, a follower of him, is one who is working at forgiving a person from their heart. And how do you forgive a person who has offended you over and over again from your heart? The only way is that you have to see your, the mountain of your sin. The only way you have to live with the sense that you owe God an infinite debt. And that's when you live in that, when you live in the reality of what, you, what God demands for the sins that you've committed, that Christ has paid for you, then you will be able to forgive and to give grace. And so Jesus is telling us, and Jesus is telling Peter, that uh, the only way that we can have the power to keep forgiving is to have an overwhelming sense of the mercy that we have received from Christ and from God himself. It was uh, an amazing thing. Uh, when we came into this building, Back in, two, uh, in 1983, we were about 40 or so people. Uh, half of us were unemployed or underemployed. Uh, and when we came to settlement, uh, when we came to settlement, we still owed $5,000. And it was to, this was called the Boundary United Methodist Church. This, this merged up the street with the Govins uh, Church, and that's called now Govins Boundary Methodist Church. If you ever drive past there, the reason it's called Boundary is because they merged. And we owed this now, this entity, $5,000 a settlement. And so they wrote a note, a debt. Uh, basically, we owed them this much. We agreed, yes, we do owe that. We didn't have the money at settlement. The first Easter of Faith Christian Fellowship in this building, the trustees of Boundary Night Methodist Church asked uh, Bill and uh, Bob Jenkins and myself, this is... Uh, <laughs> asked us to come to them after the service. That don't get too distracted with this picture. There's a lot of years between this picture. So they asked us to come and uh, to, to meet with them after our Easter service. And we walked in, and they said, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in light of his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection to assure us of our forgiveness, we are forgiving your debt. And they had that note, and they wrote across there, forgiven. And they gave us the note of forgiven debt. I can tell you that we were just stunned. We were just totally stunned by that grace and that 
forgiveness of our debt that we owed them. And uh, it's probably the first time in the history, church history, that a United Methodist Church gave a Presbyterian church a forgiveness of debt. It was a wonderful, wonderful sign of the kingdom of God. And I can tell you that our experience was that we just sensed that God was doing something really huge in our midst. And to live in that grace was an encouragement for us to be a people of grace and to be a people that gives forgiveness. And so I think as we close, this, this is a good application from Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you have given us uh, such teaching on forgiveness, our need to be a forgiving people, but our need for your forgiveness daily. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would expand our heart and our vision of what you have done for us so that every single day that we would be a people so full of your love, so full of a sense that you have paid a debt that we could never pay, that we would be a people that give grace daily to others who are wounded and are wounding others. And so, Lord, help us to be brothers and sisters who surprise people with the grace of forgiveness because we are forgiven by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.